Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. I really, really appreciate your viewership and your support. Uh, this week, I welcome back Alexander Barnes Ross, a former Scientologist out of London who has now, by the way, started his own YouTube channel. And if you all haven't subscribed to it, you need to if you are interested at all in following what goes on in this Scientology uh, ex-cult world and the different views that are now being, you know, more widely expressed on YouTube by more content creators coming on board. I welcome this and I welcome Alex back to my show. Hey, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me and thanks for plugging my, my channel. Anyone who's interested, Apostate Alex is my name on YouTube. So um, the idea is just sharing my experiences and also sharing other people's experiences. I think there's a lot of information out there about the Sea Org and about what happens in the US. And there's not really a great attention on what happens in the UK and in Europe. I mean, we have John Atak, who obviously is very well known, has been speaking out for a very long, long number of years. But um, I think I'm the most recent um uk scientologist to leave and speak out and i as far as i'm aware i'm the only staff member in the uk to ever leave and speak out so i kind of plan to just sort of share my stories from on staff and share my stories of what it was like getting into scientology as a teenager and then being kicked out and then also you know giving other people a platform to to share their stories and experiences too Perfect. Exactly. Uh, and like I said, the more the merrier out here. We need a larger variety of experiences amongst us bitter, defrocked apostates on the internet uh, because Scientology has sort of, uh, and the, the entire academic cult apologist world really just kind of parks us on the side and ignores what we have to say. And to their real detriment, uh, really, it really doesn't help the reputation of academics to claim, you know, some kind of ivory tower wisdom or knowledge on their topics of religious studies or sociology or psychology, but then just not even refute, but not even give the time of day to those of us who have experienced some really bad, awful things at the hands of been, you know, been victimized by these groups, and uh, and these folks will tend to relegate us off to the side and say we are apostates, uh, which it's a title I'm I'm so glad you grabbed, right? Because it's like, yeah, that's exactly it, and you know, and they're like, oh, we can just dismiss everything they have to say because they simply have an axe to grind. And as I kind of ranted about this last week in my Q and A show, it's. You're goddamn right. We have an axe to grind. We were victimized, abused, and you know, and tormented, and quite a quite a few other things happened to us. It was a wholly negative experience, and there is no reason anybody needs to suffer from that because it tends to be we've we've come to find out as ex members, it tends to be the usual course of experience to have that happen to you, whether it's the Moonies or the JWs or the Scientologists or Church of God or, you know, whatever other Nexium, you know, whatever the group is. And that's, that's I think, uh, an important point to remember in all of this, you know. Yeah, and I think sharing experiences is the most important thing. You know, yeah. when I, I left Scientology six, seven years ago now, and it wasn't until about a year ago or six months ago that I started 
um, sort of speaking out, it took a long time for me to realize the impact that it had in my brain and the way that I think and the way I process information. And I think by watching other people talk about their experiences and their stories and their journeys in Scientology, that helped me understand my own journey a lot better and realize similarities and differences and things. And I think that that's another reason I'm doing this is because watching channels like yours and, you know, Aaron Smith-Levin and, you know, everyone else who's on, involved in kind of sharing information and stories, it's only helpful, even if you don't necessarily agree with everything they're saying, just hearing other people's opinions and experiences helps you process it in your mind a lot better. And I think one of the reasons I'm doing this myself on my own channel is, you know, to get more UK stories out there because there are a lot of similarities but there are some differences and i think the more stuff that's out there for people to consume the better because that will help people understand themselves if they've been in themselves and, and come out but also help um people understand i'm trying to help people understand the mindset of why people and how people think when they're in scientology you know if someone if you walked into a church and someone came up to you straight away and said, you know, here's all the Xenu stuff and it's going to cost you $300,000, take it or leave it. No one would ever join. So there's always going to be some sort of benefit or, you know, draw to get you in. And I think for me, it's about, yeah, helping people understand that that mindset that gets you to accept what they say and go along with it and then realize that you're, you know, you signed up to the Sea Org and signed a billion year contract all of your life, your, your, all of your, the rest of your life and all future lives to help Scientology. You know, you wouldn't do that off the bat. So I'm trying to help people understand what happens in your mind that gets you to the point where you think that that's okay. And you think that that is the best way to help people. Um, because I think the more people understand about it, the more they'll realize how even though the majority of Scientologists are nice people, good people, they just want to help people, they're just ill-informed because they are stuck in this unfortunate group of people that think Scientology is the way to help the planet. Yeah, very much so. We were talking briefly before the show, and I thought we might continue this conversation during the show here today on some of the negativity or negative effects I certainly experience on social media, and I don't think I'm alone in this at all, in trying to, um, you know, you get out there on social media, you want to let people know you're out there, you want to put words of wisdom out there, you want to help people out, and of course, sometimes you just want to mess around, tell jokes, you know, be silly, and all the social media stuff, right, and of course, stay in touch with your friends and family, and there's this. Um, there's there's been a lot of commentary over the years about all the about all the negative things that can happen on social media that are really just sort of mirrors of what happens in real life. And yet, social media takes on this sort of bizarre, weird life of its own that is not as readily experienceable in, in real life. In other words, people will say things or do things on social media under the anonymity of, of you know, some egghead account or because they don't have to say who they really are. Or even when they do say who they really are, they still feel emboldened or empowered to act like complete asshats toward other human beings who don't agree with what they have to say. And while there is this echo chamber effect for sure, which we which we were talking about, 
where, you know, you can become accustomed to being in your little echo chamber world where everybody kind of agrees and you're all on the same page. There's another aspect to being exposed to the other side of things or the other end of the arguments on things. And that is that it tends to be this bizarre thing, at least it happens with me. And I, and I'm, I, I guess I'm a little curious how it happens with other people. But it happens to me on a daily basis where I see not just people who don't agree with me or don't agree with certain positions I've taken, whether it's ideological or psychological or whatever, but I tend to be fed, and this is especially true on places like Twitter, where I'm given the extreme end of the other end of my argument. I'm given the, 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 the polar extremist end, right? It's not just, oh, here's some people pushing back on, you know, some liberal principles or some progressive values or some social justice values. It's no, here's a guy who's, who's proudly racist, proudly thinks climate change is all a big hoax and by the Biden administration <laughs> or something, right? And you're and you're served up this and this is and and they say and do truly horrible things that make you go wow how do i share oxygen with this person it's that it, it kind of has that kind of an effect and i and i find myself fighting constantly um to fight my internal assumptions that they're not all like that, because <laughs> you know? those are all you're represented. That's all that you're shown, right? You're not shown the moderates. You're not shown the centrists. You're not shown the people who actually kind of agree with you as much as they disagree with you. But maybe this and this point, we could have a rational conversation about. I'm not fed those things, and I and I'm I can't help but think it's by design, given how heavily regulated and controlled the algorithms and search things and and the way that they feed stuff up to you is done i i can't help but think it's it's sort of on by design that it's this way and you made the point that you know social media is a sort of anti-critical thinking machine because of things like that did you, what what's your take on this I mean, to put, so we could talk about this on its own for hours and hours because, <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, my day job is I'm a marketing person, right? I'm a member of the Chartered Institute of Marketing. I've got a marketing degree. I've been doing marketing stuff for over a decade, right? So this is what I do for a living. So I understand social media very, very well and would be more than happy to talk about this for hours and hours. So I'm going <laughs> to try not to end up going down too much of a rabbit hole here, but um, social media is built around, like you say, an algorithm, but it's it's built to feed you information that you want to see. Now, personally, I believe it comes from a good place. The people who created social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, they want to feed you content that you are interested in, that you want to see, rather than content you don't want to see, which kind of makes sense, right? You, mm -hmm. who, you know, who would ever spend time on an app um, that's showing you stuff you don't want to see? So the idea behind it is positive, but... It also means that that can get skewed quite easily. So, for example, if you are shown something that a friend likes or a friend has commented on and it's something you wholeheartedly disagree with, like the example you just gave, if you just scroll past and don't interact with it at all, 
the likelihood of something like that coming up again is going to be less. Whereas if you reply, you respond, you comment and go, oh my God, how outrageous is this? I'm out, you know, you are then engaging with that piece of content. So the social media algorithm is then going to think, oh, you like that stuff because you've commented, you've engaged, you've, you've spent time looking at it and reading it and responding. So therefore it's going to start feeding you more of that stuff. So you can end up on social media in, in one of two places. You can, particularly Twitter, you can end up in either a place where you are fed just content that you like and agree with. And so people end up in this echo chamber of only seeing like-minded political um, or economic or whatever thoughts and opinions. And then people find it hard to understand that there are opposing views out there, mm-hmm. um, which, as I said, is kind of anti-critical thinking. Um, or you can end up in the place where it gets a bit skewed the other way and you're fed stuff all the time that's so contradictory to your own views and it outrages you, makes you speak up more, which therefore makes you use the platform more. And then you end up, you know, in a bit of an annoyed place because you're only being fed content that angers you, which causes more division. So. I don't think there's like a mastermind person controlling this stuff, but it's just the way the algorithm works and it will always change over time. The algorithm changes, you know, weekly, monthly, there's no set time, but they, they're always trying to refine it so that it feeds you stuff that you want to see. But because of the way that that naturally happens, you are going to get some, some sort of like outrageous stuff over time, but Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It, well, it's an interesting choice to make because now I sit here thinking about the effects of this cause, right? I start thinking about, you know, the unintended consequences, perhaps, of well-intentioned people trying to service up what they think we want to see or hear, and that will keep us engaged, keep our eyes on the screen, so to speak, which is really the end goal of of that whole process, right, is keep them consuming and keep, the, you know, attention as commodity. Um that's kind of bad enough in and nefarious in certain ways but I, but understandable um but i guess the whole model of this needs to be called into question because because both ends of this are equally sort of off if you are gauging if you're using your feed through social media, and this is where it gets into my world, I guess maybe a little bit, right, is when you're using this feed to represent reality. When you start thinking this is how the world is, is this is this feed that is catered to me. And I think we would get a far more realistic look at the disp- you know, the disparity, the variety of the world if these algorithms didn't really exist the way that they do because then you would see a much more a, a much a lot more variety of opinion if you just followed your friends even that alone could give you a a, a quite a quite an array of views and ideas because i don't have friends that i agree with on everything everywhere right it, i i don't live in a real world echo chamber but my social media certainly caters to me one to me and i wonder about that uh, do, you, do you since you are a professional in this i i, I find myself like well what do you think i mean is that mm. do, do you yeah, think we I should think... scrap this whole idea and maybe kind of start fresh with uh hey here's here's the wide variety of the world as it really is i think it's hard when you 
when we say well-intentioned um, in terms of the reason the algorithm was was written like that in the first place, I think that's very surface level because you don't know the actual reasons behind why it was done this way. You know, if you think about it on a surface level, it's well-intentioned in that, here, let's create this product, this social media thing where people come on and they see and interact. And then the more time people spend on it, the better, right? That's as a company level, you can understand how that can drive revenue, attention is money and so on. But then the reality of what the impact of that is, is unknown, right? Are the people who are running that social network doing it because they're being funded by advertising from, you know, a right-wing party or a left-wing party. And therefore is, are they going to be skewed in terms of the way the algorithm would better suit their advertisers? I don't know. And that's, I think where the regulation is, is kind of like social media as a whole is, is pretty, it's regulated, but not as regulated as it should be anyway. But I think the focus on regulation is things like advertising. There's nothing wrong with making money off a social media platform through advertising because people are on there and that's the way they make money and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's regulations about how you can advertise and who you can advertise to, but there's no regulation that I'm aware of. I might be wrong, but as far as I'm aware there's no regulation that says Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whoever have to have their advertisers a 50-50 split or equally split of different opinions. If Facebook is funded by you know russian oligarchs that are of a certain political opinion then they're going to be likely more swayed to therefore show certain content or change the algorithm to benefit because they're getting money from that and we don't know right what the the reality of it is but i think the other thing i wanted to mention on just on social media was um it gives you this ability to hide right and one example i was speaking to a friend about the other day was if you um say something you're in a pub or like you're hanging out with your friends and you say something um that offends someone and they go oh I'm not sure how I feel. that kind of upset me a bit. And you go, oh, I'm really sorry. I had no idea. And whatever you talk about it, you understand that what you said was upsetting. And then you learn not to say that again, or you understand why your views might have been incorrect or wrong or could have worded it better. In social media, because you don't see the impact that your words are having on someone, like emotionally, it's easy for you to not realize and also therefore get a bit more extreme in the things that you're saying and the way you're saying them, right? Because people might respond saying, I don't agree with what you just said, but that doesn't hit home. You you go, oh, it's just some guy doesn't agree. I don't care because you're not seeing the emotional impact on that person. It's not someone you know or care about. It's just words on a page. And so it leads to people kind of going, oh, well, I said this and got away with it well how about i say this which is a bit more controversial what if i say that you know a lot of these people in real life might not actually believe or say the same as what they're saying on social media but because they can hide behind this veil of it's just being words on the page they don't see the impact their words are having and when you couple that and multiply that by the millions of people on social media you end up really with a really divisive and contrasting um divided world that's so much more you know nasty and mean as as in the real world in some ways well it's really interesting that you that you described it that way because um what you're describing is one path probably i think i i actually believe 
one of the primary paths to how destructive cults are created in the first place. And that is that somebody will say things that are, you know, maybe purposefully so, because the, the, the logical next step from what you just described of somebody says something outrageous and people respond or they don't and then the person, um, but, but they do, um, whether they do or not, maybe the person is trying to create effects, trying to get attention, trying to find, you know, people of like mind. And so they, they ramp it up. They notch it up a level or they notch it up another level. Oh, I said this and I pissed off these people who I kind of want to piss off. Oh, well, let me try this again, right? And let me let me craft my, my messaging here, right, as to how to go about riling people up, creating emotional impacts on people. And if it's negative, well, look at how much more attention I get than when I create positive or try to create positive emotional impacts. I'll share this kitten video. Oh, I got I got 100 likes for that from my 150 friends. Isn't that awesome? Well, let me share my actual views on Donald Trump. Oh, here's 2,000 replies from people I don't even know, wouldn't ever sit down with, don't care to have, you know, even a, a friendly conversation with, but... Look at all this attention I'm getting. And because of that engagement, the algorithm feeds your account even more. Rile up, rile up, rile up. And before you know it, you've got a little following, you know. And that's kind of how it's worked on a slower trajectory than it happens on social media where it happens very quickly. In the real world, it takes a little longer to do that. Sometimes you got to write a pamphlet or a book, or you got you know you had to put yourself out there a little bit, or you you know this Jim Jones, you you have a preacher, you're a congreg, you got you you set up a congregation. That's how he started. Same with David Koresh, right? They just start with these congregations and they build it up from there. So it's interesting how the very anatomy of what we have experienced as as ex cult members is sort of right there in front of us in the social media world. And I'm not even implying that's all that social media does or that's all it's good for. That's not my point at all. It's that it has this potential to do that. And in this day and age now, we are seeing teal swans, the Liana Shantis of the world who are, if you don't know these people, they're gurus who, who made it online. They created YouTube channels. They created followings through social media platforms by doing exactly what we were just talking about there. Uh, what, I don't know. What, what's, what's your take on all that? I think I, I always think I wonder what Scientology would be like if Elron Hubbard was alive now, right? How different it would be if yeah. he was around when social media was around. Because a lot of things that they shoot themselves in the foot with is things where he didn't realize the internet was going to be a thing. And, you know, so the suppression of um, SPs and black PR and the way that Scientology tells you or, or tries to handle negativity and bad stories, um, it could be written in such better way if it was written in mind of how the internet works. But because it was before the internet was a thing, it doesn't, you know, but they're, they're stuck by having to do it how L. Ron Hubbard said in the policy. So they can't really grow and expand and innovate. And so... I always think in my mind how different it would be if, if he was around now and how they could do things in a very different way. But 
One thing that does come to mind is this this idea of division, right? And how if you can create division among people, then you can it's easier to manipulate them, right? If you mm-hmm. look at let's take an extreme example of, you know, the Nazis, right? And kind of creating this when they created this division of like we're gonna go against, you know, the UK and the US, you know, we hate the Jews and you know, all they're trying to create this division among its people to get them riled up, as you say. And from that, you can manipulate them to then fight the cause you want them to fight, even if they don't necessarily agree with what you're saying. Just the fact that you have to choose a side, A or B, you know, there's no room for this gray area in the middle. This is a similar thing. This is exactly what cults and coercive groups do, right? This is what Scientology does. I think (laughs) I was thinking as you were speaking about this, about how... um, Owen Hubbard says, I can't remember if it was in a policy or whether it was just something that we said when we were in the church, but there's a real um there's a real push when you're in Scientology to not read the news, right? Mm-hmm. Not just not read anti-Scientology stuff, but not read general news, not because you don't want to stay informed, but because the news is full of this sensationalist stuff, this divisive content, this negative content, and you want to surround yourself with positive news, right? Theta rather than N theta is the, the right. words that Scientology use. And so the news can be quite interbulating. It can be full of information that you don't necessarily need or want in your life, but it causes division. So therefore you should only, you know, you should try to avoid it. And yet at the same time, um, Aaron Hubbard writes about how psychiatrists and big pharma are the enemy and he's creating division himself about SPs and about psychiatrists. So he's saying you should surround yourself with theta, good news, and you don't want people to divide and, you know, you don't want this negativity. And yet at the same time, he's creating the negativity himself. (laughs) So there's a lot of contradiction in in what he says, but it's all about, in my mind, it comes to that division and separating your mind, that binary black and white choice. There's no room for a gray area of opinion. Absolutely. That is absolutely a key to a cult's anatomy and and to their belief set, right? Is that it's my way or the highway is is uniform across all of these things i think hubbard i think uh, scientology very well could thrive and survive as an online or social media or you know internet cult these days because this is a model we see uh we've been i've been commenting on it for years you know that you can uh create a QAnon like following and uh and really keep people in mystery really keep people wrapped up in the constant new messaging hubbard was actually quite good at that uh as a writer author you know constantly putting new product out uh there were you know 26 27 books of scientology and most of that happened in the 1950s and 60s and then he had this body of lectures and those could be released and quoted from and then just imagine if he had twitter (laughs) right imagine how many tweets he'd be like the most prolific tweeter wouldn't he (laughs) oh he would be amazing right the reason and and maybe people don't think about this too much because they look at the way we debunk scientology uh which is to show l ron hubbard's biography is a complete lie that every claim he made through his entire life, anything related to Dianetics and Scientology is total nonsense, easily be, easily disproven, right? Easily debunked. It's not even hard. 
that wouldn't really be the factor because he wouldn't have to play on all of that. That was the that was a product of the times where how did he present as an authority figure? He had to present credentials. And the credentials of post-World War II were if you were a veteran, you were respected. If you were a writer, you were respected. If you had academic credentials, which Hubbard claimed falsely, you had respect, right? If you had war wounds, oh my God, you were absolutely respected. So so here he presents as this heroic war figure, this veteran, and he has this long writing career and he knows all, he pals around with Robert Heinlein and Asimov and all these, you know, sci-fi, you know, uh, big names. And that was the acceptable way of being coming an authority at that time. And so if he were to do it now, he would do it a different way, the same way that if he were to evolve Scientology's fair game tactics now, it would be centered around a whole different central concept because the, the entire concept of Scientology's fair gaming, their attack of ex-members and critics and the way they try to devalue what we say or, or try to impugn our character and that kind of thing, the character assassination that they engage in, that's all based on this idea that you can blackmail people into silence. And that was Hubbard's modus operandi because prior to the social media and the internet, nobody had a bull, bullhorn to let everybody know what was going on with them. They were just one lone voice. They could be physically attacked. They could be fired from their job. Their friends would give up on them uh, because of you know dirty rumors Scientology would spread. And their life was kind of over and they didn't have any recourse. You know, And now, now we live in a different world very different world. And Hubbard didn't predict or see any of this happening. And as far as I can tell, that's probably one of the main reasons Scientology's failing so badly is because they don't know how to update their own policies and procedures. And it's all based on pre-internet thinking. What, I, don't, I don't even think it's that they don't know how to upgrade there. It's just that they can't, right? Because there's well, a policy that LRH yeah. is LRH. You're not allowed to alter the tech. You're not allowed to alter the policy. So even if the the new hotshot guy that's in OSA that's saying we need to start using social media and all of this, you know, yeah, they're updating things as much as they can but there is a limit to saying well we can't actually do things any differently because that's what Elron hubbard said and you look at like you i agree with what you're saying about them um harming themselves almost in a lot of the way they do things if you think about um the websites they create against sps yeah. right you know mark headley yourself everyone who's got a website who's that's by the church of scientology that's about how negative and horrible you are and blah 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 right anyone nowadays um will look at that and realize that whoever's behind it is just trying to make you look bad and it's not actually full of truths even if you know nothing about scientology there's enough of a consensus everyone generally knows nowadays that anyone can build a website anyone can buy a domain name you can buy some hosting it's very cheap you can build a quick put a quick website up there that says whatever you want excuse me there are no barriers or like limitations it's not uh too expensive you know anyone can do this so therefore i think people have in their minds that you do you can take things with a pinch of salt if you search who is chris shelton.com and the first thing you come across is this hate website that's very clearly trying to paint you in a bad light i think any reasonable human being will look at that and go hmm 
someone here is a bit annoyed <laughs> at Chris for some reason. Hmm. Let me ask Chris about that, right? Rather than read it and go, oh my God, he was this and that and this and that. Oh, what a horrible guy. I'm going to never speak to him again. You know, you take, you understand that. So, so they're, they're hurting themselves because it just makes themselves look stupid. If they exactly. didn't put a website up there like that, then there wouldn't be a reason for us to talk about it right now. And <laughs> it just makes, it paints them well, in a worse it, light. Isn't it funny? I mean, it's so funny because this is that, this is goes back to that old, that old uh, chestnut I always go back to, right? That destruction is built into its very DNA, self-destruction of, of Scientology itself because its practices are self-destructive because they're so, and one of the reasons for that is because they're so outmoded and out of date. Uh, because you're absolutely right. I think you nailed it right there with those websites and the reactions people have to them. Back in the 1950s, when Hubbard first formulated these ideas, if you got a phone call from somebody or somebody sent you a letter, you took it seriously. You didn't look at it and go, this is rubbish. I mean, sure, there were chain letters and there was advertisements, but America back then was a very different place. I think people really need to appreciate that. And if somebody called you and said, I'm investigating, you know, I've been, I, I'm, I work for a government agency or I work for the law enforcement or I work for, you know, the, 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 the government or something, people generally would believe you. And they weren't getting spammed 10 times a day on the phone. That just didn't happen. So if somebody was taking the time to contact you and tell you, hey, your next door neighbor, ex-Scientologist, is being investigated right now, or we're looking into possible allegations of him being involved with child pornography, people would take that seriously. They'd be like, holy, what? He's what? You know, and they would believe that. And... And that is not the current culture, but it certainly was back when Hubbard was formulating these ideas about how to take down critics. And I, I can't help but think, I mean, we've had this entire cultural shift, right? The 60s happened, the 70s happened. Our trust in public institutions is at an all-time low. Our ability to trust people calling us on the phone, we don't even pick up anymore. Right, this kind of thing. It's a very, very different world, and Scientology still tries to operate on these outmoded, you know, really archaic policies. I think, and it's and it's so funny how they're incapable, as you say, right, of 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 changing. If they simply erased every hate website, just took them all down didn't tweet one more word about Leah, Mike, you, me, anybody, try to engage in this weird, hostile, passive-aggressive way that they do, which is so obvious. I mean, anybody can see what they're doing. If they just quit all of that, just shut it all down, and spent all that money that they spend on that crap, on promoting Scientology and lied through their teeth about all the benefits of Scientology, because of course there, there really aren't those benefits, but if that's all they did, and they just did that dedicatedly from this point forward, in a few years, things would start turning around for them. That's the truth, right? And they wouldn't have to run through their reserves and they wouldn't have to empty the coffers fighting all these legal battles and all this other stuff that they do because that would 
they would dissipate in the public mind, you know? And I guess the point I'm making is they can't help themselves. They have to actively destroy themselves in this I whole think it, process. It also know? it puts you in a, like a cocoon in your mind, right? If you think about the people at Int, the people at Flat, you know, the people who are at the top making these decisions, David Miscavige and so on, about how we're going to tackle this, you know, they they're in a, such a cocoon of their own minds of thinking that Scientology is the way to clear the planet and this is the way they're doing it and et cetera, et cetera. You kind of lose perspective on what the wider public thinks, because if you are so wrapped up in it, you believe that anyone who's saying anything negative about Scientology is an SP and they're out to destroy you. And, you know, therefore they don't want to help people. And you kind of make this up in your mind of, of what these people are. Well, then you you have a warped perspective on how people actually think and how people actually view Scientology. And there are a lot of simple cures out there, simple solutions to a lot of their problems that they're never going to do. You know, pay your staff members the minimum wage. It's not like they don't have enough money. They could afford to do that and still have billions of dollars. Um, but they're never going to, not because necessarily they're horrible people that there's someone sat there that's getting off on manipulating these seal members and like the fact that we're you know taking advantage of these people you know it's not that it's a, they have the, a genuine belief that they don't need to pay their staff any money because they're so dedicated money's not important they get everything they need and yes you might be a bit unhappy but you've dedicated your entire life to helping the planet and so if you're a bit unhappy this lifetime who cares? Because you've got another lifetime, right? And your unhappiness is, is the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. And in your mind, when you think like that, it's not going to cross your mind that maybe we should just pay everyone the minimum wage at, as a starting point because everyone will be a bit happier. Because that's not going to help. Like That's not going to change anything in your mind when you're stuck in that cocoon of your thinking. But actually, it would have a huge impact because people wouldn't leave as much. People wouldn't be as upset and angry. People would walk away when they do leave with enough money to start their own life. And actually, maybe people would think, oh, this isn't actually as bad as it, it, you know, it used to be because at least I'm being paid for all of my hard work. You know, there are a lot of simple solutions to a lot of their problems that they're just never going to, to put into place because they're stuck in a cocoon of, of thinking that isn't, is quite warped. Exactly. I, I could not agree with you more. Um, and it's, and there's so many layers to it, you know, because there's also martyrdom and there are levels of that. I certainly lived through a lot of that. Um, where you're, you know, you, you want it to be different, but you just feel it can't be for whatever reason. You try to run the numbers and it doesn't work out. I did that. You know, I tried to figure out what would it take to make a living wage as a staff member and running all the numbers. It was abundantly clear to me that the, that the current financial model of Scientology didn't allow for anything even remotely like that. And that was one of the, one of the things that I was like, yeah, this is never going to change. This situation's never going to change. And it's exactly because, they don't want it to. They don't feel the need for it to. They're, David Miscavige is living the life of Riley, just like Hubbard did before him with billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars at his disposal. Why change this? It's working for me. <laughs> you know? yeah. And at that level, that's how they think. You know, And that's how David Miscavige thinks. He doesn't think for one second about the, uh, the status or uh, life of the average staff member. 
He doesn't care at all. It would never even crosses his mind. And he's know? in such a cocoon that anyone that comes up to him and says anything that's different to what he thinks, right, and says, oh, actually, the people are a bit unhappy. Maybe we should do something differently. Well, you're just an SP. Off you go. That You know, you never see a person again because he's in such a cocoon that's that right. he's only surrounding himself with people that go, yes, sir. You say jump, you say how high, sir. You know, it, that's this the world he lives in and the world people live in, in in the upper echelons of Scientology. And so that's not helping them. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but that's, that's the situation they put themselves in. It, well, exactly. And that really comes full circle right back to, you know, that self-destruction is built into its DNA. Mm. They can't help themselves. All we're doing in sharing our stories and sharing how this all breaks down and sharing... The, the mechanisms of control that exist at this in this organization at every level, um, all we're doing is speeding it along. It's already on its way out. That's not even a question. Because even the simple Simon changes we've suggested here, none of this is new. This Scientology was told all of this by PR firms in the 1990s. They paid millions of dollars to professionals to tell them how to market themselves. And the professionals were like, drop all the legal bullshit, stop fair gaming people, and just promote your products and the positiveness of them. And they refused. David Miscavige's like, ah, oh, fuck those guys. They don't know what they're talking about. And that's, I mean, that's the reality of it, you know? So it's it really is quite... If it weren't so tragic in terms of the human cost of what goes on in that organization, literally as we speak right now, if I wasn't absolutely positive that people are being physically and mentally tormented right now, it would be so easy to just move on knowing they're on their way out anyway. But I, I, I can't really live with myself that way. You know what I mean? I have to keep doing this because... Uh, we want it to end sooner than just letting it naturally run its course, you know? I think also, if you think about who's in Scientology nowadays, it's, you know, there are the occasional people like myself who joined as a raw public and, you know, had my time in Scientology and left. But the majority of people in Scientology are second and third generation Scientologists. Yeah. So they've been raised in this religion or cult or whatever, however you want to define it. It's all that they know in their mind right and so you have to have a little bit more sympathy for those people and the the struggle is it's going to be harder to get those people out and to change their way of thinking because if that's what you've been raised to believe this is the way people should live how do you possibly start getting that person to open your eyes and wake up and see things in a different way because it's not like they have a frame of reference from before Scientology that they can compare to. If you've been raised in it and it's all you know, it's a, it's a harder task to, you know, start unpicking things and getting them questioning things in their mind, right? I, I Having done that and having been that way, yes, I would say that's exactly true. It is, it is far more challenging. And, there, and there's been a lot of um, guesses and, 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 and subject, you know, sort of like, oh, I wonder what the difference is between first generation members and second generation members and our, our second generation members, those who were raised in the group versus first gen, people who as adults discovered the group and, and voluntarily on their own bat went into it. These are different. This is different ways of, of recruitment, different ways of retention. And, and there are big differences there. You know, there's differences in the recovery process. There's differences even in the waking up process from it of, oh, my God, I'm in something really horrible. 
I think for I think personally, it takes second gens a lot longer to realize what the hell's going on and to wake up out of it. I have jokingly and you know not so jokingly said I'm a real slow learner when it comes to that. Right? It took me ten years to like oh have all the the nails in the coffin finally pounded in. It took a long time because I needed to have a lot of bad things happen to me before it started dawning on me that the source of the problem was not me. It was the group because the group has so many mechanisms in place. And this is where we get into the destructive cult part of this, right? Is it's like there, there is premeditated, there are premeditated, uh, calculatedly manipulative things that are part of the Scientology dogma, the belief set that you must believe are true in order to be a Scientologist. One of them being the, the whole PTS, potential trouble source and SP thing. Another one being that you are always responsible for your own condition, no matter what's going on, no matter who did what to you, no matter what the context or circumstances are, you pulled it in. And the reason you pulled it in is because of your misdeeds, your overs, right? That's, that is a hundred percent in there. It's not an opinion on, you know, it's, it's Hubbard's dogma. He, I've, I've read it out loud. Those two things, just those two things, and there is lots of other stuff, but just those are, are two of the pillars on which Scientology's fanaticism and, and extremism of belief are built on. Because you have to accept those as true. And people who don't accept those as true get shown the door pretty quick. And these set up this kind of absolute belief system that anytime you're having doubts or questions or problems, guess whose fault it is? <laughs> you know, it's never Hubbard. It's never the organization that's at fault. It's always comes back to you. And you experienced a lot of that yourself. Yeah, and it, this goes completely against the concept of what's true for you is true for you, mm -hmm. right? Which is another teaching in Scientology is that, and this is how they get people new into Scientology, how they, that's one of the seeds they plant when they're trying to recruit me was like, you know, well, look, there's no one standing here telling you what to believe and what not to believe. There's no question of faith. It's a it's a question of you read it, you apply it, and if it works, if you agree with it, great. If it doesn't, you can just throw it out the window. No one's telling you what to believe and what not to believe. It's If it's true for you, it's true for you. You go, okay, great. Then that's fine because you're the one in control of what you believe and what you practice. But once you get in, that's not the case because if you were to say in your circumstances, then I don't believe a hundred percent that I'm the cause of everything. Well, then that no one's going to sit there in Scientology and go, "Oh, okay. Well, why is that? Why do you disagree with that? You know, what? Well, let's let's figure this out. Let's talk. Let's let's discuss. Let's debate because we have opposing opinion. No, it's oh well, you've misunderstood something then if you don't agree with it. Because right. that is the policy, that's the case, that's the truth. And if you don't agree with it, you've misunderstood it. Well, that is not what's true for you is true for you. It's the complete opposite. And there's so many contradictions like that in, in Scientology and Elwin Hubbard's writing. But that's the way it is. And I think it is just the more, the deeper you go, the more it becomes a binary choice of black and white, yes or no, this way or that way.
There's yeah, no yeah. room for that gray area. And that's what's taken in my recovery, for example, the one of the longest periods of time is being okay with having that gray area of not believing or agreeing with something completely one way or the other and having a kind of well, I slightly agree with this and I slightly disagree. I don't really know. I haven't made my mind up yet. And being okay with that <laughs> is something. And this is what I wanted to do with, with starting my channel particularly is help people understand that, yes, there are the abuses and the disconnection, all these horrible stories we hear about in Scientology. And there's, you know, absolutely those things happen. Absolutely those things need light and attention online. But what I wanted to do is start talking about the people who don't necessarily have stories of horrific physical abuse or having your family torn apart, there's still abuse that goes on in your mind that a lot of people don't realize even after they've left many, many years later. That's right. This gray area thing, right? An example, I can't remember if I've told you about this before, Chris, mm. but an example I was telling someone else the other day was that um, if I remember sitting on the plane, an airplane, right? I was on holiday. I was going to America and it was like, would you like the chicken or the beef, sir? I couldn't for the life of me decide which one I wanted. And this is my mind. This was literally September just gone. My mind was like, okay, well, how am I going to feel if I order the chicken and I get that and I start eating it? You know, what's that going to feel like? Okay. What's that? Okay. That's good. That, that tastes nice. Yeah. Okay. I can, I can see I'm going to be happy with the beef. Okay. What about the chicken? All right. Well, how am I? Okay. I'm, I quite like chicken. I can imagine I'm not going to be unhappy if I go for that. And your mind goes through this, like, overthinking of everything about how am I going to feel before you then make the decision. In reality, I wouldn't have minded which one I got. I could have just said, oh, I don't care. Just give me whatever. But no, because I had to make a binary choice, your mind, you know, and this is something that's it's not necessarily a Scientology principle, but it's that my mind is going through this process of learning to be okay with a gray area of choice and decision rather than having to really consult my mind and be okay with making a binary choice because I don't want to make the right one or the wrong one. And, you know, that's the abuse that, that happens in your mind that takes a long time to, to pick, you know, to unpick. I don't know if that makes any sense to you at all, but uh, no, it makes complete sense. That gray to me. area, yeah, yeah. Thing. yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you where I think that comes from, um, because I absolutely agree with you, and I have had many, many times where simple choices that should have been very simple to make were dragged out in my own mind. You know, over over the years, I can I can point to a few examples of this, um, and it's not just. It's not just indecision, it's fear of consequences, right? And mm. and that I think comes from or partly is to blame on how Scientology will treat you when you express your honest take on Hubbard. You yeah, hear something 100%. he says, right? You read something and as you just said, right? You don't have the freedom to really disagree. You have the, you find, you're told you do, and you're told, hey, you know, tell us what you think, right? And then you do, and then what do you get? Mm. 10 hours of word clearing, you know, oh. another 10 hours of false data stripping. Oh, that didn't work yet. You still have that problem. Well, let's give you crashing misunderstood word finding. Oh, what's that? Well, it's another 20 hours of dictionary work, buddy. That's what it is. And you and you and after 40 hours of this nonsense, 
you go, you know what? I really wish I hadn't opened my mouth in the first place. And you just learn to shut the fuck up you know, <laughs> for yeah. fear of those it's consequences. Yeah, it's this mental block and with the, the chicken or the beef thing, it's it's this mental block of like not wanting to make the decision or not wanting to admit to yourself so there and not really listening to what you actually want and the ability to listen to like, hmm, do I want the chicken or do I want the beef? I can't make that decision because I can't I'm not able to really figure out and accept what I actually want because Scientology gets you in this place of like you thinking, well, look, I need to tell them what they want to hear or what, right. and you, you, when you're sat there thinking, you know, when they're asking at the end, you're doing your, your um, exam at the end of a course or something, you know, you're trying to establish whether you've got your end phenomena, whether you've, you know, succeeded on trying to get the goal that you're trying to get from this course. You're like, okay, well, what you're not sat there thinking, what do I think? What do I agree? Do I want to write a success story? Yes. How has this changed my life? You're thinking, what do they want me to say? And what is it that they want me want to hear from me? And therefore you are just even more quashing what actually is in your mind because you're not actually speaking what you think you're saying, what you think they want you to think. <laughs> uh, totally. That's exact exactly. And I'll tell you, I, what's occurring to me now is another as another level of this, uh, which happened to me many times in Scientology, and I, I wonder if it happened to you, where you are presented with a question, but the circumstances and context of it are always, if I don't say, it, it's possible that if I don't say the right thing here, I'm going to be in an awful lot of trouble. So you're sat down, right? And it's like, Oh, well, is there, you know, we were looking at, I received this report from Joe Schmo, and you know Joe Schmo, he's some friend of yours, and maybe you were having some bull session last week, and you said a few things about, you know, somebody at the org, or somebody down at the, or some idea you had that disagrees with something that happened at an event, and you get, the, and you were told, well, Joe Schmo wrote this report. You're not shown the report. You're not told the contents of the report. And the person, the ethics officer usually, right, or some senior authority figure will sit you down and go, is there something you'd like to tell me? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, oh, God, no. What do they know? Exactly, <laughs> they know. right? It's like, oh, shit, right? And, of course, this is not just Scientology. I've seen vice principals and deans and disciplinarians do this. It's an old trick, right? It's not like Scientology invented this shit. But when you experience it from people you're supposed to trust who you are told over and over again have nothing but your best interests at heart, who are just trying to help you survive to your potential, it's allied, it becomes allied with this sort of, you know, oh, this is supposed to be a trusting authority figure when in fact it's an abuser. And that's where things get really messed up for, for us, you know, I think. You know what, this is just, I've just thought about this in my head now, and this is something that maybe is different for class five staff members like myself than SEALG members like yourself, because, um, I don't know, because the nature is different. We would work nine to six, Monday to Friday and right. have the evenings and weekends off. So we were a lot more social outside of work, right? right. And I'm guessing this didn't happen so much in this SEALG because you're just working all the time and you don't have it 
a a social life and be enough money anyway but we would be in these situations right like you're saying where your ethics offer is officer is trying to figure out what you've done wrong and you're crying your eyes out and there's this whole like emotional thing that goes on and then at the end of the day you finish work you go to the pub with them because you're still friends <laughs> right <laughs> and you go and have a nice meal together and you're hanging out right. as a group and it's like everything that happened in the day is you recognize that that's the Scientology work thing, and that's what they're doing as a job. That's their hat. That's not them. So you put it, you kind of draw a line in the sand, and then outside of work hours, you don't look at this ethics officer and think, God, you were trying to, you know, figure me out earlier, and you what an asshole for doing that. You don't. You just like cool that's not him he's just doing his job right and that's that's fine but it's just it's i'm just thinking in my head now how weird of the thing that was and it wasn't weird at the time it was totally normal to like have that happen and then go for dinner with them <laughs> wow that is funny and a, and actually a very good distinction it's an important one to make because it's one of the reasons the sea org does rile that up or dial that up quite a bit you know maybe from 11 to 12 right and they, they really rile it to dial it up but you have in Scientology, in the Sea Org especially, you have this sort of separation, this enforced separation of levels in, in the Sea Org where if you're part of a certain organization that is an overseeing and regulating body like the Commodore's Messenger Org, the CMO, that's a group that you don't get to have friends with. They only get to socialize internally. They don't they don't they 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 very are they're very negative on you know having friendships or marriages or dating or anything like that um, outside of the organization and they are the and they and they they purposefully created those layers of separation so as to prevent that exact problem that exact situation where he you know your disciplinarian or your ethics person is also your friend or also your you know, brother-in-law or whatever, because it's a pretty small group, right? And you get those kind of connections often, but nope, nope, nope. That's That relationship doesn't exist. It's only the Sea Org relationship that exists, and that's the only one that matters. And all the rest is just other fish to fry, you know, as they, is what, they, is what they'll, they'll call it. Oh, you have other fish to fry. You're just being out ethics, you know? Uh, and yet that's exactly everyone that fills up the staff roles at class five orgs because there aren't enough people to staff these orgs it's it's mostly second third and, and you know the occasional fourth gen staff and um, scientologists there where you know you've got a group of three bro brothers who are all on post and they've all married another you know three load of people from different three different families and suddenly the whole org is run by like three families exactly <laughs> and that's it. but yes. they're all brothers and sisters and married and have children and yeah. you know it's it's not to the point where it's being it's starting to be inbred or anything like that but the staff in the org is just a small number of groups of people that are all connected in one way or another and that's the way it has to be because there aren't enough new staff members coming on board and yet when you get to the Sea Org, they hate those sorts of connections. So it's just interesting how they allow it because they have to, but they wouldn't if they didn't have to, you know? Exactly. Exactly. As long as it all serves the higher cause, mm. which is interesting because you would think that there would be a mechanism of some kind put in place in a, and certainly in a fair or just organization, there would be where you could have, you know, some kind of an appeal. You could have some kind of line you could use 
that would that would have that would go to an outside body that would go to a place where this isn't going to be tolerated that you could let and it, and it used to be this way right in name only though this is just another trick right but they would they they did this and this was this old thing and this this started back in the 60s actually when hubbard said and put out a box in every single scientology church and it said you could write to ron and you could and you could let him know things right you could say things to him whatever you wanted to I wrote to him as like a seven-year-old. I was like, I just went to summer camp. It was so awesome. And I threw it in the box and sent it, right? <laughs> I mean, at what? and I got a reply. And I will tell you that reply, it really stuck with me. As a, you even still as have a, it. As a, no, 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 I don't, I, 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 I did not keep it, but I was, but I also came to learn it wasn't Hubbard either. I mean, those, those answers were coming from his staff and as often as not, they would take those, you know, these buckets of letters that would come to Hubbard back in the day in the sixties and seventies, and they just toss them over the side of the ship. <laughs> they just didn't have time to deal with that crap. Right. And it was like, ah. You know, and I came to learn this from the people who actually would answer Hubbard's letters, right? I mean, Hannah Eltringham would talk about this, how um, uh, how they uh, would just dump them over the side. They just they just just not just just too much work to do, and not enough people That's doing so it, right? <laughs> oh yeah, and they had rubber stamps for his for his uh, signature. They would learn how to write his little signature real easily, you know, and this kind of thing. And that translated, after Hubbard died, that translated into, well, you can always write to the Executive Director International, and that was E.D. Int. And that was a guy, and we all knew who that guy was. His name was Guillaume Lesev, and he was the E.D. International for decades. And you thought, oh, I'm writing to him. And for a while, in the 90s, in the 80s, you could get sometimes you could get answers and they would actually take action and and look into things more often than not they were looking into you and why you were writing in the first place mm -hmm. but there would be some kind of action and then suddenly even that dried up and then it became a problem where if you're even using that line why are you doing that yeah. I mean, I had a similar thing. I mean, it wasn't to ED Int, but I, I remember when I was on staff, I wrote a telex to COB, to David Miscavige, right? Mm -hmm. I was being, I was doing my staff status training and learning about how, you know, the org works and how the telex system works. And I wrote a telex to COB, just basically saying, hey, I'm this new guy. I'm in London. I'm excited. I'm gung-ho. And I just want to let you know that I'm here and the director of public book sales. And, you know, I want to, it's my mission to put London on the map and, you know, whatever you need, sir, you, you know, you can count on me and I'll do it basically. Right. Something along those lines of like, hey, I'm just letting you know that I'm really um, excited and proactive and gung-ho about this thing. Didn't hear anything back at all until several months later when I got kicked out and they, they used it as one of the ammunition things against me of like, and here we got a load of reports about you writing a, te a telex to COB. What was that about? And I was like, well, I was just, you know, like any excited young kid that's in this new job, you know, just wanting to, let them know that I'm here and I'm excited and, you know, it's all very good, very positive stuff. And they're like, well, we got in a load of trouble because of that. 
um, you know, that we, we had so many reports written down and it never reached him. It reached one of his assistants and, you know, it made, they painted me in this light, this bad picture of like, you've done something wrong here. And I'm like, well, it comes entirely from a pure place of overexcitement and young being a kid and happy and wanting to do the right thing. And suddenly it's like, well, no, why would you telex him? You're just creating dev T developed traffic. You're just adding work to, he's already got enough work on his plate. Can't you see how busy he is? He doesn't need some stupid kid like you messaging him as well. Why would you do such a silly thing? And it's like, well, okay, sorry. <laughs> you know, right. But, in it, fact, there's a policy you, that says they want you to do that. Weren't you actually applying the non-existence formula? Mm. Yeah. And there's a yeah. step in there. Okay, so th this formula is just a series of steps you take when you are starting out on a new job in Scientology. It's a formalized thing. And there are these like six or seven or eight steps or something you're supposed to do. And one of them is send out communications announcing the fact that you are on the job now to yeah. everybody who might possibly have something to do with what you're involved in. Well, the guy at the very top, you know, kind of an important guy. I'm sure there's some levels between you and him, but you see him multiple times a year in these events and stuff. Is it really that outlandish to think maybe the CEO might want to know London has a new guy? Are there yeah, really so many people coming on staff in Scientology that I'm overloading him with this? I mean, I don't think so, right? So, And uh, there's also a policy that says book selling is like the number one most important thing you can do in Scientology, right? right? Which is, I'm sure there's lots of policies that say that about lots of things. But there was one that I had read on my training, Staff Status 2, of, you know, doing Div 6 work in, in London or that's like, Books make booms, right? Selling books is the most important thing you can ever do in an org. And that's what, so me as the director of pilot book sales is thinking, hmm, well, if it's the most important thing you can do, well, then the most important guy should know that you're the one doing it. So I'm going to message him and let him know. And, you know, it wasn't a, hey, here are my ideas and a big long essay of information. It was just a very like three or four line telex that just said, I'm the new guy. I'm really excited. Let me know what he needs to do. You know, exactly. all the best. Exactly. But no, that, you know, what have you done? What were your overts? Why on earth would you think that that's the right thing to do? Well, because it says in the policy that that's what you're meant to do. Exactly. <laughs> oh, you misunderstood it. What word have you gone past that you don't understand? That's do you right. know the definition of the word the? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What is the definition of the word as oh my god there's like 25 <laughs> definitions that i i literally so i did the basic study manual which is a course which is like learning how to learn and it's you know teaching you how to look up words and all this sort of stuff and i did that twice because i got to the very end and i flunked um like some word clearing on and it was like cool you had to redo the whole thing and it was like the word as or an or something and there's like 25 or 30 definitions and derivatives and then you also have to know the origin and it's i spent bloody hours and hours and hours on this thing and i was like i don't even care anymore i don't ever want to read again <laughs> i know it's wild isn't it it's again it's that consequence right mm. it's it's it can really be interesting how these these tools 
that Scientology supposedly is offering as a solution to life problems. And misunderstood words is high on that list uh, because they say it's the universal problem and reason why nobody can learn anything. And it's the number one quote unquote barrier to study is you don't understand the words. And yet this is not used that way in Scientology nearly as much as it is used to bludgeon you into compliance. And oh, you know, I learned my lesson. Yeah. You know damn well I was never going to go past the world I didn't understand again because I didn't want to go through that again. So I was the most studious person in the course room. Every time I came across a word that I wasn't a hundred percent in my mind on the definition was, you know, I would look it up in the dictionary because I don't want to flunk another like exam because I don't want to go back and do it all again. And I've spent hours and hours defining the word as or and or the or whatever. I'm done with that. I'm never doing that again. Learned my lesson. So I never went past the word I didn't understand after that point. So it worked. <laughs> well, exactly. And I can, and, and having been on both ends of that for thousands of hours, literally in my 20, you know, seven years of, of uh, dedicated full-time Scientology experience, I both, you know, was the victim and victimized other people <laughs> in regards to the use of these words, you know, and I can't count on even one hand the, in my memory of this, how many times looking up a word and clearing it fully as they do actually clarified something in the text it was not about understanding the text better. It's another exercise in compliance. You know, that's how I look at it now. Um, because I can, I, I'm telling you, there's very few and far between. Was it, oh, well, you don't really get what this word means. Let's look it up. And then they do and they go, oh, shit, I really didn't get that. Now it's clear to me. That did happen and it does happen, but not as often as, shut up, sit down, and just accept what you're reading, <laughs> right? And I think that's an important distinction to make. I think that's a very important point to make because people make an awful lot out of that. They really go to town with the misunderstood word thing and, oh, it's so important. Really? Is it really that important? How many times did you grossly not understand something, got, went and cleared up a word, and suddenly it's all clear as, clear as water to you, you know? Mm -hmm. Not, not as much as people pretend. But it did teach you to, as you say, comply in a certain way, right? There, in Scientology, there are symptoms of a misunderstood word, right? Yeah. So if you're sat there in the course room yawning or you're fidgeting or you look a bit uncomfortable, then those are supposedly signs you've gone past a word you don't understand. And so they teach you to... Uh, that, that teaches you to be really compliant and almost like a robot. And so I'm sat there reading this book in the course room, and instead of actually taking in what it says or reading it and understanding it, I'm sat there thinking, oh, God, I better not twitch. Oh, no, that's a yawn coming in. Hold on. I'm just going to breathe in and breathe out and not yawn because otherwise I'll think I've got a misunderstood word. And so you're like, you're like this robot in your mind of like, trying not to do these certain things whilst reading this book so that you don't have to then spend hours word clearing. And you just, like you say, you come into this compliance of being how they want you to be, looking how you, they want you to look and acting in the way that they want you to act because they want you to do a certain thing when you're studying and not yawn and not fidget. And so you teach yourself never to do that. Um, I loved it. Once I, when I got out of Scientology and 
you know, if I'm reading something now and I'm in bed and I'm tired at the end of the day and I yawn, I bloody love it. I'm like, look at me. I've yawned and I'm carrying on reading and I'm not looking up anything in the dictionary. Like the power. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. Of just being able to do something as small as that without being worried. I'm going to have to look something up in the dictionary, you know, like it's just little things like that that you don't realize affect you many years later, right? Exactly. Well, God help you if you yawned in my course room, you know, I mean, it's just, and, and it's not like, <laughs> you know, it's not like as a supervisor, I had any choice. I mean, that's exactly what I was standing there to look for is, oh, he's yawning, he's doodling, he's, he doesn't look as interested. He doesn't look as interested as he did, you know, 10 minutes ago. I better go find out what's up, you know? And you would get some people who would adopt this as a kind of, like, they were always this way. They they would sit and read, and they'd, they'd have a little smile on their face, and they'd be very calm. And every now and again, you know, almost like clockwork, they would kind of move the little demo pieces around and then get back to reading and they were like the model student you know and they learned how to create this this persona that that wasn't really them it was this model student that they were being right because they were being a good scientology student and this is what you're supposed to look like and and hubbard actually describes it in the materials it's not like we had to make this shit up he said, this is how it's supposed to be. And if it's not like this, you better go get on top of that person. They've got a misunderstood maybe 10, you know, and you better clean them all up. And it was just, uh, you know, but it was interesting to me how some people would buy into this harder than others, you know. Some people would really go all in and other people would just kind of, you know, even veteran Scientologists in the course room, sometimes I'd approach them. I'd be like, hey, man, did you go buy a word you didn't understand? And they would get a little irate. You know, they'd be like, no, and I don't even know why you're bothering me. I'm doing perfectly fine. Please fuck off. Right. And it wasn't quite <laughs> wasn't quite that strongly worded, but it certainly came across in their attitude. And and this could really if you had a supervisor like, you know, myself who also had a chip on their shoulder or who had a little authority problem, right? A little status issue. It was like, well, who are you to talk to me like that, right? I'm the one who holds the power in this room, not you, asshole. And so now here's your ethics routing form. And now you're ruining this dude's entire night because of your, because you think this person doesn't look the way that you think they should in consuming this material, and it was really interesting to see the power plays at work there, but also just the differing levels of acceptance of this information. Not all Scientologists are uniform. We would browbeat the shit out of them until they became that way, but sometimes, you know, to better effect than others. And it's, and it's just an interesting point, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Ugh, interesting stuff, <laughs> you know? Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> What else did you want? You know, you, you came at me with a list of topics that you wanted to take up as well. And we've, we've consumed an hour here on some of this uh, pretty interesting stuff in terms of Scientology mm. culture and, and, this, and the way it forms a culture of compliance. I, I, it's, a, it's a phrase I'm, I'm quite happy with these days in talking about cults is they, is they cre you know, there's a confession culture and there's this sort of, um, you know, authority thing. And we can kind of look at Lifton's eight points of thought reform and see how all these things line up in Scientology. But at the end of the day, it's really kind of reduced in my mind down to it's a compliance machine. That's what it is. It, it's getting you to comply, you know? 
Yeah, I think one thing I wanted to, it was on my list of stuff that kind of links in here was talking about the ego and auditing. And um, when, you know, I never had this myself, but remembering things from past lives, right? And whether or not it's true, you believe that that is something that happened to you. And I think it's just an interesting point that to maybe segue into of like this thought idea of compliance and, um, acting in a certain way and believing what you're being told and whether or not that's necessarily true. You know, I wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. You know, if you're, whatever you say is true is kind of being enforced, right? It makes you think that you're right a hundred percent of the time. And that's why you get quite an inflated sense of ego with Scientologists and with Org members, particularly with like, I'm on this planet clearing mission. That's the most important thing ever. And you've got a bit of chip on it. Like you're saying the chip on your shoulder in the course room, you know, you're doing something that's really important. And Elrond Hubbard tech is a hundred percent, right? A hundred percent of the time. Um, I think the impact of that on your on your ego is something that is another thing to work on in recovery, right? I wanted oh, to yeah. just know you pick your brains on that. Absolutely, yeah. I'll, here's where my thoughts go immediately on that. As you mentioned, past lives and memory and, st- and stuff like that. There's an awful lot of lore, you know, and mythology and Scientology that you're introduced to even fairly early on. Um, and, and I don't know what your experience was with this, but with me, it was, you know, I grew up with this stuff, right? So I grew up in, you know, going into the Pasadena mission before it was even an org. And there were paintings of spaceships with the Sea Org symbol on them. And it's like, what's this? You know, oh, well, this is us going off to Target 2 because after we finish clearing Earth, we're going to go off to other planets. And it was like, I'm growing up with Star Wars, right? And I'm looking at this going, Oh fuck yeah! That's this cool. is this is the shit, yeah. man. We're gonna be those <laughs> dudes, right? Like this is what I grew up with, and so uh, there. So I I I I can't necessarily speak to the first generation experience with this, but uh, you know my experience was that past lives and going into past life memories and the importance placed on that was something that was just integral to Scienti- to the Scientology experience. There were there were books that were popularized when I grew up. One of them was Have You Lived Before This Life. That was a it was a book of auditing session stories that people told about their past life memories in auditing. You know, about how I was a I was in a robot body and I got and I crashed on this planet and all these crazy things happened to me. And, you know, just in a few pages, they would sort of summarize this this uh, whole track experience, as they put it. Right. This because this, the, the, the sum total of all your memories going back to, you know, the beginning of you as a spiritual entity is referred to as your as your whole track of, of your memories. And this was a this was an expected known, understood thing. And then I learned, as I learned about auditing and and training and becoming an auditor, that there were certain auditing processes that practically demanded that you have past life memories or it really wasn't going to work that well or you weren't going to get the full benefits of it. And this I refer to as this sort of priming effect, right? This like we're going to set you up as to what to expect in your auditing sessions so that you, if you're having a good session or an ex, or a, a, you know a, a um, an expected session if you're being a good preclear you're going to serve these things up 
And that's really the only way to get the full gains of Scientology is to go past life. And with that expectation, it is so easy to produce them. Because you cannot tell, not one human being anywhere in the world can, can tell with utter certainty the difference between a memory and something they're imagining. Mm-hmm. It's happening same in the, the same dream, place, right? right? Like, have you ever had a dream where you've woken up and thought, God, that was really realistic. And then over time, you know, when you're not really thinking too well or you're tired or whatever, you're like, hold on, was that a dream or was that actually a, something that happened? That's right. right. That's right. I'm not the whole saying deja it vu. 100% of the time, but we've all been there, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's, and that's part and parcel of Scientology. It is, um, it's expected behavior of a Scientologist that you're going to accept these things. And the really twisted part about this, from my perspective, the thing that really messes with people's heads, and and I think a very significant way, is that you are told, and you even commented at the beginning of the show here about how you are told right from the get-go, this is a bedrock principle in Scientology, that you are not taking anything on faith. It's all true if you think, you know, if you think it's true, it's what's true for you is true, right? And that's personal integrity and that is, you know, they 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 put this in lots of different ways in Scientology. But the bottom line is you're not supposed to be taking anything on faith. And yet, how else can you call past life memories or even the 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 embrace the, you know, the, the of the truth that you're a spiritual entity who has no mass, no wavelength, no location in space or time? immeasurable how can you take that how can you accept that and call it anything else but faith it's 100 percent faith and you have to believe it for any of scientology to actually make sense double binds right it's the contradictory stuff that they give you it's like with the sp thing right the idea of you only get sick if you are pts right if you have a cough or an illness it's because you're somehow connected to a suppressed person well okay i've read that and do i agree with it or believe in it well no because i haven't seen any evidence of that last time i was sick um actually i was in my room and didn't leave the house for three days so i actually had no connection to anyone so no that isn't real for me so there is an element of faith because you have you read it and you go well okay well i'm not sick now so i don't have any reality on it but yeah i can see how that's the case so i'll I'll accept it and believe it and next time i'm sick you know you go through this phase well who's this suppressed person your pts and and so on so but there is an element of faith because you read it and then you have to believe it because you can't necessarily apply it or you know you don't see the reality of it straight away that's right exactly and in fact in that example i think to myself well the first place we would have gone if i was doing an ethics pts handling on you would have been, oh, well, okay, so maybe not in your immediate environment, maybe not in the immediate past, but, you know, restimulation isn't necessarily an instant thing. Maybe someone in your vicinity reminded you in some fashion of some person that suppressed you in a past life. <laughs> you know? And you just think, come and, on. I, like- right? Right. But it's but it's all there. Right. Because, you know, Hubbard had somebody tell him that back in the 60s. They're like, dude, I'm sick and I'm not connected. to anybody. What the hell are you talking about? 
oh, well, you must be re-stimulated. And he comes up with this whole thing called type 2, you know, mm-hmm. and and now we're going to use this mechanism, and that's going to account for anybody who has some question about this. Oh, no, you're type 2. And mm-hmm. in fact, if and if you don't respond to this simple handling and come up with the SP and answer, you know, and give me the answer I demand you give me, oh, well, we'll just go into your past lives. And past lives, anything goes... <laughs> You know, it could have been the squid man from Mars, you know, 20 million years ago for all that it matters. I mean, that's, you know, any answer will suffice as long as you comply with the procedure and keep believing that L. Ron Hubbard knows what he's talking about and you don't, you know. And pay the bill for all of this as well. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you can't audit somebody. This is the funny one is there's these all these stupid rules that get broken within a microsecond, right? You can't audit somebody who is PTS. If you are sick and PTS and you've got some SP in your life, we can't audit you. Unless it's a past life suppressive who's re-stimulated, then we have a whole rundown. And guess what? It's going to take 25 hours, $10,000, please. And then we'll cure your PTSness. Right? It's crazy. So, exactly. And this whole PTSness is a thing that we've told you you've got anyway. It's not something that you've walked in and said, hey, I'm having trouble communicating. Can you help me with that? It's not like this is something we've told you you've got. This is a problem that you have we have told you and therefore to fix it you have to pay us to fix it for you it's like you know (laughs) it's nuts isn't it nuts it's just this really circular logical trap that just goes round and round and round and it's the hamster wheel to nowhere right you can't get off it there's no logic in your way off of this thing because the internal logic of it keeps trapping you Every time you think you found something, oh, nope, 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 there's this other thing. Oh, you're not PTS because there's no SP. You must be false PTS because that exists too. And guess what that means? That means the reason you're sick is because you have evil intentions that you have created in your own space, in your own universe, in your own mind. And those evil intentions are being dramatized by you right now because you've committed sins, you've done misdeeds, re-stimulating your evil intentions, and that's why you're sick, see? So there's always an out. There's always an out for them. Yeah, and the church is never wrong. The church and never is wrong. always 100% right. That's right. They're never, ever wrong. Um. Let's jump to the last bit here that you that you mentioned on your list because it's a good one and it's something I definitely wanted to talk about before we uh, before we wrapped up today and that is um, you mentioned Christian Zerko, who's a great mm. friend of mine and somebody who is getting people out of cults longer than you and I have been alive, and the man is is just a walking encyclopedia of recovery and how to help people out of these mindsets. Um, and back into a place where they really can truly kind of think for themselves. Whatever they want to think isn't the issue. Are they thinking for themselves is the point. And not having to rule their life through some compliance dogma and through some set of values that don't make any damn sense to anybody but a cult leader. He helps people free themselves from that. And he's very, very good at it. 
Um, what did what was your take on him in in bringing him uh, up to me? And and what were your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I just that? think I was watching one of your videos, your interview you did with him, and I just thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, first of all, the whole thing was great, and I you know loved the interview. But one of the things I picked up on was this idea of um, feeling guilty for not working, right? And in my particular recovery process, and I believe it's the same for pretty much any Scientologist I've ever spoken to before. In Scientology, you are um, made to believe that working, being productive, is the only way you're any use in the world, right? If you That's are right. not being productive, you're not you know, doing something with your life, you're not working, then you're a waste of space, right? And that's all you should be doing all the time. And so when you leave, um, it's a really big hurdle to overcome to learn to be okay with not being productive 100% all of the time and feeling guilty for not being productive and that's something even today that I still have you know I left Scientology you know I still considered myself a Scientologist probably up until about 2016 but I left the church officially got kicked out in 2014 so it's been a while since I last I was last in an org in 2014 so it's been a while but it wasn't until recently that I've realized that I fortunately have a job that I love doing and I do enjoy it and I feel very happy and I would I work for myself. So I will happily work at any time, any day of the week, weekends, whatever, doesn't matter because I enjoy it. Um, but there comes a point where it's like if I've if I'm really tired. And I'm just not really feeling up for it. And I'm not sat there actually working. I'd I'd realized I started to feel guilty, and I was like, God, why? You know, if I'm playing a game, a video game or something, I like feel bad that I've just spent an hour playing a video game. And you think, well, this is stupid. Why is this? Well, it's because in Scientology, you're made to believe that being productive is is the right thing to do. And I just thought that what you were saying about that was was really impactful. And there's a quote where you said, you don't owe the world your martyrdom, right? Yes, you don't right. owe the world that. And that just really hit home for me because it is that's a belief that you have as a Scientologist when you leave that you have to give all of your time and your energy and your effort to this bigger cause to save the planet, to help people. And if you're not doing that, then, you know, who even are you? You're an SP, you can fuck off, right? Excuse the French. But yeah. it takes a lot to, even if you don't think Scientology is the best way to help people on the planet, you still have that mindset of like, being productive and helping people and all of this in this you know it takes a lot to shift your mindset i agree i completely well obviously i do because it's taken me years and i've commented on it regularly over those years uh, on this very channel right how it has been such a struggle to get past the whole saving the world thing and i truly am i don't talk about that anymore because i don't have to because it's not it's not renting space in my head anymore but it took so many years to dump that bullshit idea. And it's so closely aligned. The reason, of course, that it took me so long is because my, my life purpose, if there is one, if there's something that emotionally satisfies me and fulfills my sense of purpose, it is helping people. It's, it's, I can't think of a higher calling or a better thing to do with my time than help people. So it was not hard to convince me that or guilt me into the concept that if I wasn't spending every waking moment, you know, if before, as Tom Cruise fucking said, 
right? If, if before your head hits the pillow, have you done everything you can to forward Scientology? This fanatical statement by a fanatic, right? Tom Cruise, which even as a Sea Org member, I would feel guilty about, right? And I'm 24-7. And here's some fucking asshole actor telling me that I'm not helping people enough, right? It was like, holy shit, what, what kind of opposite world are we living in? Scientology. And yet I adopted that, embraced it as a principle and held on to it for years, even after coming out of Scientology, because it's so closely hewed on what I thought was the same purpose line, well, we're helping people. We're helping people. This is all about helping people. What's to, what's so wrong about wanting to do everything you can all the time to want to help people? Is it not a kind of crime? Is it not a kind of denial to deny people that help, to not give it to them when they so desperately need it? And you and you certainly realize after coming out into the real world and you know that there is, it's, an, it's a bottomless well. There is, there is no amount of help you can give in your entire life, even if you were somehow not able to, not, didn't have to sleep or eat. You will never be able to plug all the holes that are leaking in the, you know, in the Hoover Dam of the world, right? It's, it's just, there's too much. There's too much for any one person. And so you end up adopting, I ended up adopting, a, a martyrdom complex. Well, I know I can't solve all of it, but I've got to do, I must do everything I can, you know, to, to somehow have a life that means something, to somehow be ethical. This is what I had to do. And if all of that doesn't describe a slave mentality, I don't know what does. A willing slave, you know? And that's what Scientology turned me into. And I think that was by design. I don't think that was an accident. I think that's the same thing that happens with all Sea Org members. It's how they're recruited. They're guilted into it for the most part. And then they're guilted into full-blown martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one thing that you, you know I want to raise attention to is that you spent what 27 years or something in Scientology? As 27 altogether, uh, 17 in the Sea Org, yeah. 17 in the Sea Org. You know, I was on staff for like three years, right? So it's nothing in comparison, right? right. But the effects are still the, are the same, right? I still have the same thing in my mind that I'm still trying to combat now, and there's still this whole concept of being okay with wasting time doing something completely meaningless and you know not feeling guilty for not working i was in scientology for three years on staff but that doesn't mean that the impact isn't the same or you know the this is sure. what i want people to understand that it's not the amount of time spent in scientology that changes your mind on things like this it's actually just the once that change has been made in your mind it's really hard to unpick that right because there's a complete shift in mindset from someone who's never heard of scientology to someone who suddenly believes that that's the way to help people excuse yeah. me that's the best way to help humankind once you've committed to that in your mind that this is the way to save the planet it's really hard to unpick that and and come back from that and it's not saying it's impossible it's something that you can do but it does take time you know i left scientology 
you know, however many years ago. And I'm still realizing today that there are things in my mind that aren't quite how they would be if I hadn't have been in Scientology. And so I think that's what the message I want to get across yeah. is that it's not about how long you were in or how committed you were in terms of your post in the sea or staff member, even just a member of the public that was studying and paying to be a Scientologist. That brainwashing or whatever you want to call it is still happening to you and it will still impact you oh absolutely i mean almost everything we've talked about today has been stuff that exists at the public level of scientology it's not sea org stuff you know you start getting into truth rundown and you know some of the heavier duty stuff and the rpf crap and that's that's sea org you know the public aren't going to experience that kind of thing but i agree with you completely that trauma is trauma you know, abuse is abuse, and public Scientologists are abused, and staff members are abused. And, and you know, being a staff member myself for eight years, and you did it for three, and you know, you know that experience. It sucks. It's uh, Christian says something very, very interesting, and I wanted to sort of throw this out there because it's uh, something I haven't said before. Um, it, the Christian quote is, and that is that time is the currency of recovery. It's what it takes. It's, it's what you have to spend in your recovery. There is no fast route to it. Um, you know, the only blocks on the road are if you insist you don't have anything to recover from. And, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt, right? It's a thing. And, and there is no way, there is 0% chance from my knowledge of, of the mind and psychology and everything I've come to learn in, over, in, the, in the last decade of doing all this, there is no such thing as I don't need to recover from Scientology. You're just you're just not up to facing it yet. You know that's how I look at it. But time is that currency. It takes time, and and putting yourself on that road is not necessarily a fast or easy road for any of us. And and how long you were in, what you endured, that has nothing to do with you as an individual. Uh, and our, and anybody else's ability to judge you for your recovery. It's going to take whatever it's going to take for you, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a rock bottom truth. I think that it's interesting. Let me ask, let me throw this at you as the, as the new idea is, isn't it interesting in Scientology that they tell you that you cannot die, that you are a spiritual entity who literally cannot cease to exist. And that's everybody. That's you, that's me, that's Joe Schmo, that's Trump. That's everybody. We're all spirits and we can't die. So what's the big hurry? Right. This is something I think quite regularly and quite a lot. How <laughs> I'm actually glad you brought that up because I wanted right? to say that to you. Was Right. I had this thinking when I signed my SEAL contract because I got there and I was on a program to go and arrive in the SEAL flag. It didn't happen, thankfully, but I was there. Um in my mind um right you've signed a billion year contract right so i d- if you do the maths it's something like 900 million lives or something right there's a yeah. hell of a lot of lives that you've got <laughs> to you've just dedicated and you've probably gone through what a hundred million or something already well, but four, still, four you know, quadrillion but, years worth yeah you know yeah, yeah right so you've got a lot of time so why on earth do we need to you know why are we not sleeping why do we need to be upset this week if if this week we don't sell as many books as last week yeah obviously we want to aim to always try and do more but 
who cares if you know we spend a couple of weeks or or i take a day off to go and see my family you know or if i go and go on holiday for a week to reset because my mind just needs a break you know doesn't matter because that's you know we've got hundreds of millions of lives to do this in so why do we need to do it now and the answer is always well because we need to clear earth and then we're going to go on to target two right and that's where you get into the bigger picture cosmos thing but that's right it never sat right in my mind of like why are we trying to do this so quickly now 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 to the point of everyone's detriment because right. i understand the urgency and the importance of wanting to achieve the goals of Scientology quickly. But when it starts impinging on your life in a negative way, because you haven't slept properly because you've been working so hard or, you know, you haven't eaten properly in several days because you just haven't had time to have a break to eat a proper meal, you know, things like this that start impacting your health, right? Why are you sacrificing yourself? for this thing that genuinely even if you believe 100 percent in all of it there is no rush to do it now <laughs> exactly. take 10 minutes have a little rest have some food have a nap take you, you you scientology gets you to this place where you start putting the needs of scientology ahead of your own because you have your your you know, who cares if you're a bit hungry or a bit tired or a bit upset because the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. This thing is more important than me. This thing is more important than my needs. If I'm a bit upset, if I'm a bit sad, if I'm a bit tired or hungry, that's okay because it's more important that we progress Scientology. Oh. That's where it gets your mind. It makes you think that you are not as important as this thing. Exactly. Which is a huge thing to, to have your mind get to a place where well, well is it not just more slave mentality exactly right it's like oh no you aren't working hard enough you're not working fast enough we always have to have the whip on you and what is that if, if i'm an immortal spiritual being who's going to live again and again and again and all i need to do between lives is remember to hook back up with you guys and if my own past life memories are to be believed, then I did exactly that because I had past life memories of being a Scientologist before. And then I connect with a family that I grow up in Scientology. I never thought as a Scientologist that that was a coincidence. I always thought that was, you know, that I had something to do with that spiritually. Mm -hmm. So if that's all true, then what the hell, man? How come we can't have a party? How come I can't have a day off? How, all the things you just said. Well, because that's not what it's really all about at all. And let's be real, right? If, if we had an infinity of time, and Hubbard writes this in his goddamn KSW, everybody has to read it over and over again, this keeping Scientology working bullshit, where he basically, that, that is the semin, that's the foundational mind control document of Scientology is keeping Scientology working. And in there, he says, we don't have any infinity of time to do the job, right? And, but he never tells you why. He never says. He just refers to, you know, this planet is a time bomb. Well, we, that's why we built the vaults and saved all the tech and have it all preserved. So even if the planet blows itself up, Scientology will be the one thing that survives. So why, why don't we build 20 of those vaults? Why don't we build 100 of them? And why don't we let everybody know where they are? Why do we hide them away? What is up with that? 
Like every part of this defies any sensible logic. But isn't it interesting how, at least for I can speak for myself, that I bought every part of it and I didn't think twice. It's just, it's mind boggling to me that, that this same brain accepted all that bullshit for all those years and never even thought to ask any of these questions that are now so obvious to me. Mm-hmm. And know? even if you did ask them, I asked a lot of these questions when I was in Scientology at the beginning, but they just, they give you an answer that satisfies your need. You walk away from it yeah. going, well, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. They don't say, you know, it's not like I went in and said, do you believe in aliens and Xenu? And they say, no, we don't. And I was like, okay, great. Never mind. You know, I challenged them, right? And got them. They give you an answer where they go, well, look, no, there's, you know, he wrote science fiction and people think we believe in his books that he wrote before. You know, they give you an answer that's a lie, but it's, it's an answer that makes you think, oh, okay, cool. They're not just trying to palm me off. They're not just trying to tell me a lie to stop asking the question. They have given me an answer here and that makes sense in my mind and so that that then in your mind makes you think okay cool i've accepted that let's move on to the next one and they they do that that's how they get you in so even if you had asked those questions all those years ago they still would have answered them in a way that would have got you to accept it (laughs) Uh, you're absolutely right of course you are and and who knows i might even be forgetting i mean you know 27 years is a long time I'm, I had a lot of questions at the early days, and I'm probably forgetting, you know, most of them. Um, but, wow. You know, what a thing. <laughs> what a thing to fall into and get the hell out of and then look back and go, Jesus fucking Christ. Um, compliance culture. It's really it is what it comes down to, you know, is you will comply or uh, there will be consequences. And there's consequences are not going to be pleasant. You know, did, did they ever use the phrase, did you ever hear when you were a staff member, did you ever hear of a too gruesome? Too gruesome? hmm No? What's that? Really? Okay. So you never, What's that never gruesome? filtered over to London. Okay. So a too gruesome is a phrase out of a Scientology policy letter. It's uh, Hubbard's, Hubbard policy. I think it's called how to be an executive or a model hat for an executive. One of those two. These, there's a policy letter he wrote where he talks about how you have to use punishment. And he, and he talks about in Science of Survival and other works how punishment drive absolutely positively does not work. And, you know, driving people with punishments is a very low-toned, bad thing to do. So, of course, a few years later, he writes a policy saying exactly the opposite because Scientology is opposite world. And in this policy, he says that you have got to overcome people's reactive minds. You are giving them an order. You're telling them something sensible to do. The reactive mind is this little psychotic voice in your brain or in your head that constantly tells you not to do things and not to do the survival thing and and do all the bad things, cheat on your wife, you know, rip off the company, do all these horrible things. That all comes out of your reactive mind. So what Hubbard said is everybody's got a reactive mind and they can't really have power of choice over it. So what you have to do is as the executive or the leader or the authority figure, you have to create a circumstance where the environment around the person is more dangerous to them than their reactive mind is. Wow. 
So the reactive mind has the power to inflict pain on you if you don't comply with it out of the engrams and all that. I mean, it's, it, this, isn't, this isn't rocket science. It's, it's all in there. So, you know, if the reactive mind is made up only of incidents of pain and unconsciousness, and that's what Hubbard said, then it has that pain to exert on you to make you do what it wants you to do. And so Hubbard said the only way to overcome that with some people is to make their environment and make the punishment for not complying with your orders too gruesome for them to confront. And wow. so that became a noun in the Sea Org and in Scientology, because I first heard about this as a staff member, not a Sea Org member, back in Santa Barbara, and it was called a too gruesome. What's your too gruesome? What too gruesome do I need to put down here for you to get your shit together and get the work done? would be the kind of question that would come your way, or they would just dream up or invent a too gruesome for you, whether it was scrubbing the bathroom with a, with a toothbrush or staying up all night cleaning the bird shit off the roof or, you know, doing some other really, you know, kind of grungy, degrading kind of work that was clearly meant to make you feel like a scumbag because you couldn't get your stats done or you couldn't pull off a product. And so we're going to give you a too gruesome and this is right out of Hubbard's policies. This is not a Miscavige invention. This is a Hubbard one. And it could and, just be that I was like too I was lucky because I was generally upstart and I got in trouble a few times, but there was never a time when I was in a huge amount of trouble in the org for doing you know, other than the very end when I got kicked out. Right. Um, it might just be that I was never in that situation where you know, my stats were down for a really long period of time and I was in really deep shit and they needed to therefore, you know, teach me a lesson. Um, so it could just, it could be a thing over here that I just wasn't aware of, but no, I've certainly never heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it pretty doesn't common. surprise me that it exists. No, it's not. It's it was a it was a fairly common, uh, I don't know what I want to call it, a trope. I don't know, you know, it was a fairly common thing. Uh, certainly at the Sea Org level, right? It was two gruesomes. And, and that's how they talked about them. You know, it was, oh, that those guys need some too gruesomes to get their shit together. They're clearly not not working, right? Because every week at management level, you know, you're working at the org level. I was working at the management level where the statistics would come up to us and we'd be judging the staff based on their statistics alone. That's that's how we knew who the staff were is by how they're how, what they were producing. They were just numbers to us for the most part. And we would judge accordingly. And so if the numbers were coming in goose eggs, you know, zero, zero, zero week after week or zero, one, zero, zero, two, zero, zero, you know, this kind of thing. We'd be like, what the fuck are these people doing all day? Right. These people need some two gruesomes. We got it. We got to like, you know, and that's where the punishments would start coming down the line of, you know, you better get some better get some uh, heads on a pike down there. This would be another the other language we would use is Hubbard would talk about how you had to put a head on a pike. Right? I definitely like, heard that one. Yeah. yeah, we used that for sure. Oh yeah, right. You have to, in other words, you have to set an example. You have to make somebody an example to everybody else, so they all get you mean business. And it was mm -hmm. the very first thing a Sea Org member would do when we would go on a mission into an org to start kicking ass and taking names is we'd stick somebody's head on a pike, and obviously not literally. We didn't behead people, but we would. <laughs> 
you know, it, figuratively we would. We would type up a goldenrod piece of paper with their name clearly emblazoned across the top and list out all their crimes and all the reasons they were horrible people and they better get their shit together and everybody else around here that we haven't investigated yet, oh, we're going to find your crimes too, you know, if you guys don't get to work. And the entire thing was blackmailing people into working harder and, and, and getting us what we wanted, which was mainly money. You know, that's what it was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, sure. yeah, compliance culture, right? So just these these things that come up that, that I think about. All of it totally unnecessary if you actually logic your way through. Wait a minute. We've got an infinity of time to get this job done. Why are we all freaking out like this? You know, not it's opposite world. None of it actually makes any sense. And again, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier of like, there being really simple solutions to a lot of these problems that would make it so much more tolerable and much less abusive is if, you know, if they just said, cool, take a week off, you look tired, you know, take a week off and relax and come back and let's try again (laughs) next week. Then people would be like, great. Okay, cool. I feel good about myself. I've managed to reset in my mind. And so, you know, this is a really easy solution. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> but it's just not something they'll ever do. And if they were to make these small changes, it would make the whole thing a much less abusive and b much more tolerable for those who are in it. But just because of the nature of the way that it was written, and Elron Hubbard saying that you cannot change policy, you cannot change tech, it's never going to change because in order for people to do that, they're going to have to overcome the one fundamental rule that Elrond Hubbard's words cannot be changed. And if you change that one little thing, well, then who's to say the whole thing can't be changed and it opens up a can of worms they're just never going to do. Exactly. Exactly. And just to, again, reiterate opposite world in Scientology, what has David Miscavige been doing for the last 25 years straight? Changing Elrond Hubbard's words. <laughs> Isn't it awesome? It's awesome in that world. It's just so crazy making. Well, I really want to thank you for joining me today, Alex. This was um, this was quite an interesting talk. I think we covered a lot of uh, just fascinating stuff about Scientology. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, 100%. Thank you for, for having me on. I think obviously last time we spoke, I shared my story basically start to finish. And I think this was nice to have a, a bit more of a, an intellectual chat about you know, the policies and the thoughts and like the way it all works and the mind, you know, everything we just discussed, it was great. And uh, yeah, thank you for for, for having me on and, and chatting to me. Awesome, man. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And again, good luck with your channel. I will encourage people to go check you out uh, and, uh, you. and subscribe if you like what you see. And, you know, it's good stuff. So uh, I'll actually post a link to your channel in the description section here on YouTube and uh, in the show notes so people can can find you easily. Thank you. You have to come on at some point. You have to flesh out an idea of a video and I'll have you on as my guest. It'll be interesting. Absolutely. I'm always around. Nice. And uh, and on that happy note, everybody, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. I'm going to remind you all that I am available for professional consultation if that is something you are looking for or need, either as a ex-cult member or survivor of a coercive situation. And it's not therapy that I offer, but it is advice and consultation and uh, from an educated point of view. 
And of course, I can help you if you have friends or family who are currently stuck in a cult situation and you don't know what to do about that. Um, you can contact me and I might be able to assist you in that regard. Otherwise, uh, if you find this educational, informative, and entertaining, as we always hope you do with our shows, then um, consider supporting the channel through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, whatever. It, the links to all of that are in the description section to the video. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Bye-bye.